This is a Broad Pods production. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. I've seen the harm and consequences of being labelled as disordered. I've seen what happens when someone grows up believing there's something wrong with them. Okay, so first of all, our guest today has just the best name. Oh, we love a good name We do, we do. Sunny Jane Wise is an advocate and author. They've written a book called We're All Neurodiverse. Now, on the face of it, it sounds like a very bold statement to make and some people might be affronted by it, but that's because most of us just don't understand the terminology. No, and I definitely didn't. (laughs) There's just so much we do not know about neurodiversity. This chat was so eye-opening and I just, you know, Sunny's story of growing up with a diagnosis of autism and how that affected them to founding a drop-in care centre for queer, neurodivergent and disabled adults is heartbreaking and uplifting. Yes, and it's a really challenging conversation, but it is well worth diving into because we do relish a challenge. Sunny, thank you so much for joining us on A to B. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Your book, We're All Neurodiverse, I have to start there because it is phenomenal. It is one of the best books I've read uh, as an explainer on neurodiversity and just the conversation around normal, what is normal, right? And really just, oh, it's so brilliant. Congratulations on this book. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you like got the message that, you know, this is this is to start a conversation about what is normal, to challenge what is normal. So that's literally all I wanted, to start a conversation. To begin with, the title is just such a huge <laughs> title. Even as I was leaving the house on the way to the studio today, my daughter, who's of course on school holidays now, said, Mum, 
how can that be true? What does that mean? So I said, you'll have to listen to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us, how can that be true? What does it mean? Yep, the title is definitely a conversation starter. Um, So we're all neurodiverse means that we are all a part of neurodiversity. Both neurodivergent people and neurotypical people, we are all a part of neurodiversity. So when I say we're all neurodiverse, I mean us as a society, us as like humanity on a whole are neurodiverse. Our classrooms are neurodiverse. Our families are neurodiverse. Our communities are neurodiverse because we each have a unique brain. We're all a unique individual and that's what makes up diversity. That's what makes up neurodiversity. However, we're not all neurodivergent because not everyone diverges from neuronormativity. Not everyone functions in a way that diverges from neuronormativity where their functioning is labeled as a disorder. So while we are all neurodiverse, we're not all neurodivergent. And often that's where the uh, misunderstanding is uh, because some people believe neurodiverse and neurodivergent to be interchangeable, but they're not. So it's also kind of a little lesson in itself as well. (laughs) Uh, The the book is full of lessons. It has a glossary. It has history. It's, it, I have found it so valuable. Um, is part of the issue in this conversation the need for labels? Do we want are labels a good thing or uh, a reductive thing? Um, I think labels are both helpful and unhelpful depending on the context and depending on the usage and depending on whether labels are weaponized against individuals. I think when labels are uh, coercive and come with, you know, oppression and discrimination and being pathologized and being punished, that's when labels can be unhelpful when they're weaponized. But when labels are self-chosen and come with empowerment and community and pride and all the helpful things, then so both. (laughs) So how then do labels develop in an empowering way in which they won't be weaponized? How can we actually extract labels about neurodiversity, neurodivergent individuals from patriarchal language and oppressive history? Because it's big, isn't it? It is really big. Um, and that's why I do criticize the DSM and the concept of disorder within, within the book, because that is a label that has been influenced by colonialism, by capitalism, by white supremacy, by the patriarchy, by, uh, you know, uh, unfair expectations and standards surrounding on what an ideal person should look like and function. And that has shaped, you know, what we label as a disorder and how we, you know, punish people and exclude people and pathologize their very existence or their emotions or their responses to trauma. Um, And I think that's where uh, neurodivergent is a label that came from the community that was defined not by, you know, uh, the pathology paradigm or the patriarchy, but just uh, acknowledging a simple fact that someone functions in a way that diverges from neuronormativity and that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. That doesn't mean there's a problem with their brain and neurodivergent moves away from that pathologizing understanding like of ourselves. We need a couple of quick explainers, one being DSM, 
because yeah. I, I don't think many people will even know what that is. And the second being what you just then referred to, which was the, the pathology paradigm. Um, so I've been in the psychiatric system since I was a very young child, so I forget that the DSM is not common knowledge. Um, so the DSM is a diagnostic statistical manual, and it's basically a book that contains every diagnosis, every psychiatric or mental health um, or neurological or neurodevelopmental diagnosis. Um, so, you know, autism, ADHD, bipolar, BPD, um, anxiety. Um, and it's the book that psychiatrists and psychologists use to diagnose individuals and match up symptoms with a diagnosis. And talk about labelling. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. I mean, fun fact, uh, prolonged grief disorder was added to the DSM. What's prolonged grief disorder? Um, basically, you have a disorder when you grieve for long, more than six months and it impacts your ability to work and do things. Now, that really, I just think, uh, how yeah. do we define how long grief should last? And Absolutely. isn't it completely appropriate when you're in a grieving state that it will mm. impact you? Why yeah. do we pathologise that? Exactly. That is what I question and that is actually how... The DSM has been the entire time it's been, you know, in existence. It is trying to control how people respond to trauma. It's trying to control how people grieve, how people experience depression, how people think, how people learn. Um, it's so yeah. this is obviously part of a, a, a systemic construct. Can it be reimagined or realistically is it just too late for any of that you have to work with what you've been given I it's so hard because idealistically I would love to say that we can it's not too late I mean otherwise what are we fighting for if we think it's too late you know I think things can change but oh, is it going to happen in my lifetime? I really hope so. But I do think it requires like a complete reimagining, a complete shift in paradigms, a complete shift in our frameworks, in how we understand individuals. And we actually honestly can't do that without, you know, challenging everything else, like challenging capitalism, challenging colonialism, unpacking white supremacy, being committed to, you know, anti-racism. All of that is tied into challenging how we, you know, uh, label people and how we view how people function. And challenging the pathology paradigm. Can you explain yes. this? Um, so the pathology paradigm is the uh, dominant lens, the dominant framework in how we currently understand people and the way they function, you know, the way they communicate, the way they feel, the way they learn. And the pathology paradigm is what underpins psychiatry and psychology, the mental health field. And it's based on the idea that there is one right mind, there is one right way to function, there is a normal brain and any deviation from that one right way to function, that normal brain means they have a disorder, that there's something wrong with them. Right. It's very much defined by uh, people who decide that they're normal and everybody else isn't. Mm. Right. And that could be <laughs> the colonialist patriarchy yes. at work. Do you think Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Man, it, this is why the book is so fascinating because it actually, you're so cleverly mapping out the history of how this has happened 
uh, the theories behind it and then giving us an alternative, which is a movement of change that we really support here. I love that I think that it is shifting, maybe not fast enough, but then you, you show us a different way, a way in which, as you say, we're all neurodiverse, a world in which we accept everyone and not try to try to change them. Is that the goal? Exactly. It's just basically accepting that there are multiple ways to function. There are multiple ways to learn, multiple ways to communicate, to feel, to exist as a person, to pay attention, to process your emotions, to express your emotions. Basically just multiple ways to be a person and there is no right way. And the um, step beyond I'm that is then to create a world in which all versions of can thrive because yeah. currently that world doesn't exist. Yeah, that world doesn't exist. Um, it really doesn't. It doesn't exist in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in you know, how we're supposed to present in the public, how we're supposed to learn. Yeah, it really isn't. Um, and then obviously it's reflected in people's attitudes as well. So, Sunny, for you, growing up in a world where none of these idealistic circumstances exist, how did you find your way? Because from what I've read in your book, it was pretty dark to begin with. And so what was that journey like for you to be able to step into thriving yourself? What were you like as a child? Where did you grow up? What was your environment like? Um, uh, I was uh, obviously very unhappy as a child. So, you know, my from the age of 11 to 25, you know, I had a lot of suicide attempts, a lot of self-harm, a lot of bullying, not having many friends, um, uh, you know, very unhappy. So what is it at age 11 that makes you think that it's not worth going on? What was the world telling you about you that made you believe at the time that you needed fixing or you needed to change somehow? The world was telling me and, you know, not just the world, but the mental health professionals around me, the, my family around me, my uh, teachers, uh, fellow students, everyone was telling me that there was something wrong with me, that I was the problem, um, that I wasn't liked, I wasn't loved, um, I wasn't wanted. And so when you are constantly hearing all those messages and those messages are reinforced through people's actions, you start to believe that, um, you know, you start to believe they're right and it's true and therefore that was a logical choice. In of course, and, if you've got no one around you supporting you. And can you just explain, did you have a diagnosis? What, what do you identify as? Um, yes, yeah, so uh, when I was between seven and eight years old, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD. So I had a diagnosis from a very young age. And what years were they? Um, 1999 and 2000. Because I was just trying to get a sense for like when I was like a 10 and 11 year old, those words were almost never said. Like it was oh, just. Oh, I don't I, even know that they existed. This is the, not, eight, yeah. this is the 80s, but I don't know if the late 90s were any better. The late 90s, uh, well, they were saying the words, <laughs> but they weren't saying them in a nice way. Um, yeah, in the 90s, uh, there was a very deficit understanding of autism. We didn't have access to the resources that we have now. We didn't have access to neurodiversity. It was only just being created. We didn't have access to, you know, an affirming understanding of autism or ADHD or anything. It was, or, you know, a, a ABA, which is a very... Uh, 
not good. It's a very abusive uh, uh, therapy for autistic children. Um, social skills class, again, not affirming. Um, and then people, a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions and harmful ideas about autism that were reinforced and told to me. So, yeah, it wasn't a good time. What's ABA? Can I just jump in? Uh, applied Behavioural Analysis Therapy. And how is that damaging? So basically it focuses on changing an autistic person and getting rid of autistic traits like they fought uh, and it removes the autonomy from a child and it focuses on rewards and punishments. Uh, so basically on compliance. So there's, you know, forcing an autistic kid to make eye contact even though making eye contact is very uncomfortable and distressing, getting an autistic kid to stop stimming even though stimming serves an important purpose it's uh there's actually a few studies out there that show how aba is very traumatic for autistic children and uh it's uh shared the lived experience of like autistic adults who have gone through aba and have recounted how traumatic it was so once again trying to change the person so that they fit in with and conform with the way other people are supposed to interact socially to make everybody else feel comfortable yeah basically Because they believe the way we function is wrong. So was ABA a treatment that you had to endure? Yes. Um, not as intensely as other people, but it was something I went through. And social skills class, which is where you learn how to socialise in neuronormative ways. God, half the time I think I need that. <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, all I can remember from social skills class was there was this like one girl and she loved horses. So every time I saw her, she always had something to do with horses. And that's all I can remember. Oh, horsey girls. <laughs> I've always been jealous of them. Oh, yeah. Horsey girls. Yeah. <laughs> the Jim Carner. Yeah. So, Sunny, I mean, I'm guessing school was an incredibly lonely experience for you. Did you have friends? Did you feel completely isolated? Primary school was horrible. Um, like I went to seven different primary schools. Um, so I definitely never had, I was always in the new person and I was bullied a lot. And it, yeah, uh, primary school was a very isolating experience with a lot of bullying and some very horrible memories. Do you think um, that other kids were experiencing that too, but because you were sort of in your own experience, none of you ever connected or identified that somebody else was going through this isolation? Um, There was, I like, I think there were definitely other kids who were also experiencing isolation. I'm not sure if all of them were like experienced, experiencing, you know, uh, being chased into the bathrooms and bashed by other kids. But I do know how the kids were definitely bullied um, and treated poorly. Um, uh, uh, And then high school was... High school, uh, the bullying became less direct um, and I also kind of started fighting back in high school. So by year 10, I wasn't getting picked on for fights anymore, which was great. You mean physically fighting back? Yeah. Wow. um, I got punished for, like, obviously, um, you know, I can accept that, but, you know, the only times I physically fought was in self-defence. But then, you know, I think, you know, with high school and like teenagers, uh, the bullying and exclusion became more subtle, (laughs) more, you know, uh, covert. Yeah. 
Was there a teacher or anybody during those times in primary school and high school who really helped you through that? In one of the primary schools, there was uh, Miss Callahan. That was a primary school I went to for two and a half years. And yeah, Miss C, Miss Callahan was like incredible. Um, uh, I used to have lunch and recess with her in the classroom because, you know, no friends. And, you know, uh, because my mum had four other kids, she would take me to choir practice sometimes or to debate practice to, you know, help me have positive experiences. <laughs> Why did you change school so often? I uh, was suspended a lot and like got in trouble a lot and bullied a lot. And then uh, I come from a really late low socioeconomic background so my mum had to was a single parent and so had to move house a lot so so yeah. it was part geography and part the circumstances in the school and when it was the the school and not the um, geographic relocation was it the school who were encouraging you to leave or was it the, your mum making that decision to get you out of that difficult situation or a bit of both a bit of both Yeah, there was definitely one school where they wanted me gone, but there was a lot of like, you know, uh, complicated. Primary school was very complicated. (laughs) I just feel so much compassion and incredibly, I don't know, full of love and but sadness also for your child self, Sonny. Like how you managed to get through that time and still be learning. Like that's the critical side of school, right? You want to be learning. And yet you're in an essentially an environment that felt unsafe. Yeah, I, I definitely did not learn much because of, uh, you know, how unsafe the environments often were, which, you know, is why uh, creating like affirming environments, why accommodating neurodivergent people and, you know, creating safe environments is so important because otherwise how will people learn? How will people be able to reach their full potential? How will people be able to work and do their job if they don't feel safe? Well, how did you learn? Because you're such an extraordinarily articulate human being. So you must have been squirrelling away books somewhere and hiding out and studying. Was that the case? I, no, I never learned my times tables. Like, Well, me know. neither. <laughs> look at me now, Sonny. <laughs> She's got her own podcast. I, my ATAR was really poor. Like I think it was like 52 or something. I yeah I but again that's a construct isn't it so intelligence isn't you know isn't bound by your ATAR yeah well I think yeah people can be articulate if they learn in different ways or like you know there are a lot of things that I'm really not smart at but the things that I am smart at I'm really smart at (laughs) but it's just a narrow topics Um, oh well the research and writing in this book are incredible so there's no (laughs) question around your intelligence here However, I want to know, we always ask in A to B, you know, there's a sort of a regular theme of our questions. <laughs> no one's, I don't think that's a surprise I to anyone. Because as humans, we have, we, you know, we all have so much in common. Well, that's true. But one of the many. Or we're just lazy with our questions. Well, but but the, <laughs> the question that we often ask is around, you know, uh, once you've had this experience, what's the positive outcome of that? How has that shaped you positively? But usually when we ask those questions, it's positive experiences people have been calling <laughs> on. But for you, you know, I wonder how have these incredibly traumatic experiences shaped you as a person and are there positive things to have come from it or is it just trauma? 
<laughs> well, yeah, there's trauma too. Um, but I guess I would say that's where my passion for, you know, everything I wrote in the book, I truly believe in. And the reason I'm so passionate and even determined and stubborn about it is because I've been on the other side where I've seen the harm and consequences of being labeled as disordered. I've seen what happens when someone grows up believing there's something wrong with them. I've seen what happens when people are excluded and bullied and punished and viewed as the problem and I obviously I don't want anyone else to experience that so it makes me even more motivated to get this message out and to change the narrative and challenge the pathology paradigm in the DSM. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. What was the transition? How did you find an end to that really dark space where you just didn't want to be here? to then transitioning into becoming someone that, yes, you did want to be here, you did want to live and you were able to find, I'm hoping, some love and acceptance of self. And purpose. Mm. I think there are a couple of key things that changed things for me is finding people who actually accepted me and, like, loved me and liked me for who I am, like, you know, autism and ADHD and bipolar traits and all. <laughs> and, and who were they and where did you find yeah, them? how did you find <laughs> them, especially as you were in such a dark place throughout your teens and into your 20s? Did somebody just arrive in your life? I, I believe that there are really no coincidences. Um, uh, one of them, uh, like, found on Tinder. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> They're still with me too, which is awesome. Um, then the other people I kind of found through social media who obviously like live where I live and we just, you know, became friends and I don't know how it works, but they just, you know, kept coming back. Um, and obviously I think, you know, that's why I do love social media. It's given people an opportunity to find other people and develop community and everything. Then, uh, I guess as well, what helped me was being introduced to the neurodiversity paradigm, to being introduced to neurodivergence as a concept and this entire new framework and lens and movement. Was there an aha moment for you? Was like, was there an epiphany where you've just gone, oh my God, I've been lied to and now I see the reality? Yeah, I think that epiphany was in 2019. Yeah. What happened? So I was diagnosed like with autism and ADHD when I was a kid. Then when I was about 21, I decided that I wasn't autistic or ADHD because I didn't fit the 
harmful. I, I was defiant. I was like, no, they were wrong. I'm completely normal. I mean, obviously I am normal because autism and ADHD is normal. Um, and it wasn't until uh, 2018, 2019, where I was starting to listen to autistic people on, online that I was learning from actual autistic people rather than that deficit narrative and then you know I was also going through therapy when that was when I was like oh I am autistic like I am ADHD Um, and so it was just being able to reframe everything and I guess understand autism and ADHD for myself rather than what I was being told by the people around me. And conceptually it's become broader than it would have been when you were first diagnosed. So it's, you know, when you were first diagnosed, you may not have identified with the diagnosis and and had resistance because of the normative nature of society and culture around. And what what I was being told as well, like I was told that I would never have people skills, that I'm not a people's person, that um, I don't like people and because that didn't match up with how I felt. Like I wanted, I love people. I want people to like me. I like having friends. And because that didn't match up with what I was told about autism, I was like, well, how can I be autistic then if I like having friends? I mean, just just the pigeonholing is astounding. And the effect that it has had on your life and on the lives of so many people who needlessly have to live with pain and suffering of being treated so appallingly and it's just all so unnecessary. This is the sadness in it. And it still impacts me to this day. Like in all my friendships, my relationships, the way I think about myself, my automatic response to rejection, um, my fear and anxiety. Yeah, like I, I still think poorly of myself all the time because that's what I was taught until like I was like 25, 26 years old. So that's a lot to unprogram, a lot to unpack. It's so, a long part of your yeah. life as well. And and I feel as though I feel this really strongly about a lot of uh, people who aren't men, let's say that, right? Because men, let's just, I don't know, it, this might be a controversial thing to say, but I, I think living within a patriarchy, men aren't challenged as much as people who aren't male because we're working harder to fight the inner talk, Mm. right? And you are working harder to undo all of that language that's in your head that you were fed. You know, it's harder for you to walk into a room and meet new people. It's harder for you to write a book and present it to the world. It's harder for you to take risks. Mm. I mean, I've even read... Um, a theory around bipolar that it was just a construct that was invented to explain a, a non-male resistance to the patriarchal world. And so therefore so many women were diagnosed with bipolar. Oh, absolutely. The misdiagnosis of bipolar. Oh, I have so many thoughts on bipolar. However, that will be a whole <laughs> another other. conversation. <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, so... Sunny, you have founded a drop-in centre, which I love. Can you explain the purpose of this? Yeah, so the drop-in care space 
um, is a peer-led community centre, a second home or a third home in Adelaide. So even though I'm the director, it's run by a board of some amazing people who are, you know, queer or trans or neurodivergent or disabled themselves. Um, so it's not just my baby anymore. It's a baby owned by many. Um, uh, and it's basically for adults who want to connect with other people like themselves, who need a safe space, who just want to connect with community because obviously I've seen how important and valuable community is, how important connecting with resources by lived experience, by being around people who get you or understand you or have similar lived experience. Um, and so that's what the drop-in care space is, just a place to provide those opportunities for people. And how can this type of opportunity trickle down to help younger people as well because you were obviously trapped in a cyclical you know circumstance where you're being bullied and you you really didn't know what to make of your diagnosis and adults essentially were making all of the decisions for you now that still happens to this day and you're still going to have adults you know parents who are wanting to do the best for their children but are invariably or sometimes, I shouldn't say invariably, but are often making decisions whilst from a good place are not setting their child up to turn into a, you know, fulfilled, happy, thriving adult. So how does your work kind of spill over into that space? Um, I've actually had like a few parents or a number of parents who have read my book and, you know, follow me on uh, social media where like I do more of this education and they've said that it's, you know, it challenges the way they approach supporting and understanding their kid. It challenges expectations and ideals and norms that they hold. Like you must eat dinner at the table or you know you must shower every single day or your house must always look a certain way uh, or your kid must look at you when you're talking to them there's all these you know basically these uh, it challenges your idea of how you should raise your kid and what we believe to be true isn't always necessarily true especially with what we've been taught by society or what is the right way to parent or the right way to develop as a kid or the right way to socialize or play or the right way to arrange your kitchen or your bedroom even something as simple as that i think the challenge for parents and i've had a very small experience of this myself not that my daughter she's not uh, been diagnosed divergent, but she has a, I hate this term as well, because we all have genetic disorders. We just don't know about them, but she has a genetic disorder, right? And uh, I've had to take all of my cues from her as a parent, but that has required really resisting a lot of what the medical profession has said to me. And that's mm-hmm. hard because as so a parent, hard. you think, oh, I should do what the do- doctor knows best. You want to look somewhere <laughs> that you can trust. But doctors don't know best necessarily. Yeah, you know, your, your child is the, is the authority of themselves. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, but that's hard for parents. Yeah, no, it really is because we are, we are taught that psychiatry, psych, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, medical professionals, they're the experts but what we're also realising and which I think parents may not always be introduced to unless they seek out those resources, but we're also realising how much of, you know, our psychiatry and psychology isn't based on actual science but on 
the expectation that there is a right way to function. And so I think, you know, that can be really hard when we're taught something is the authority, but the authority of what? And so obviously social media then, and you you did say that that was great for you to make connections, but what I'm hearing as well in, in that all the work that you do, the more work that you do, the more that you'll pop up on, you know, search engines, the more that people will find you through social media, even when they're least expecting it, if they're just, you know, researching a particular word or terminology around neurodivergence, then they might find you and that could actually change the trajectory of their life. Do you have a sense that that things happen for a reason or that you gravitate towards somebody for a reason or cross paths with them for a reason? I mean, you had the Tinder swipe in the right direction, yes. did you? What about that? I love that about I love that about dating platforms. Left or right? Sliding <laughs> yeah, door. Sliding literally door. sliding door. Honestly, I'm not someone who believes that everything happens for a reason purely because then I'd have to believe that all the bad things happen for a reason. Um, And if people are dying or being murdered or, you know, being abused or being mistreated, like I refuse to believe that's for a reason. So, (laughs) no, I do not believe everything happens for a reason. But I guess I do believe that when things happen, then we should, you know, I guess embrace them and accept that they happen and then figure out what we do next. Like it's what we do next after something happens that matters. And I really love what you say there though, Mimi, is that Sunny, you are for many people possibly that very thing that shifts them into, you know, a different sort of trajectory that sort of shifts them into perhaps finding that self-acceptance that you took so long to find in yourself. Um, So have you got you know, it's a really awful way of phrasing it, advice, but, you know, what what would you share for people who perhaps are currently in a dark place who maybe need something that shifts them? Oh, that's so hard because I feel like, you know, everyone who is in a dark place, they may need to hear something different. But I guess something that may be applicable to people is just because you're in a dark place doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Um, I think more people need to hear that there is nothing wrong with you. Even if you experience challenges and struggles, there's nothing wrong with you. Even if you have so many needs, like there's nothing wrong with you. Even if you experience distress and, you know, you find life overstimulating and overwhelming and you're in distress a lot of the times, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Sunny, that's so beautiful. I could imagine you saying that to your child self. Are they the words that would have helped you? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Probably wouldn't have believed me, (laughs) but it would have been nice to hear. You'd be like, I've come from the future. I am you in 20 years. (laughs) Do you know what, though? What it takes is lots of people to say it and say it over and over until you do believe it. Yeah, 100%. Yes, I agree. Yeah, And for adults to be the advocates for the children in our lives so that they understand that. And true love and acceptance comes with that sort of, you know, that kind of language. We're here to challenge neuronormativity. How do we do that? Oh, so much. Um, By challenging our expectations, by challenging what we believe to be normal, by 
adjusting and adapting our environments, by changing how we think about things, by identifying neuronormativity in the first place and identifying how it shows up in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our expectations and our ideals and our our understanding of success and independence and by simply making more room for how people function, for all the different ways that people function. So how what is the sort of the key overarching way to do that? Because um I'm really hearing you talking about how you are unlearning your own triggers that have come from the conditioning of your childhood and and young adulthood. And that is an ongoing daily challenge, I would expect. So in terms of all of us unlearning what we have just assumed to be true around um, neurodivergency and diversity, how do we unlearn that? Is it just having an awareness and questioning everything that we thought to be true? I mean, do you have sort of practical ways that you've supported people to unlearn what they have learned? I think uh, there's a couple of things is having an open mind and being curious, um, being open to learning and being challenged. Like I think it's very common for someone to read something that challenges you and be like, well, that's not right. I've always done it this way or that's not right. Doing it this way is the right way. Um, And so, you know, get comfortable with being wrong, question everything. Um, I think we definitely have to question things. And then uh, I think we definitely need to seek out more resources about identifying and unpacking neuronormativity. We need more conversations around that. So I think for those who are a part of that conversation, speak out, speak up about it more. Speak up about neuronormativity. Start, you know, identifying ways that neuronormativity shows up in your life and share it because it's kind of like with uh, heteronormativity. You know, we uh, a lot of people can now identify ways that heteronormativity shows up, but that's only because people started identifying a identifying it started having a conversation about it so we definitely need to get the conversation going about neuronormativity in order for people to start decentering it but those conversations need to happen in a psychologically safe environment right and i feel as though one of the absolute keys is just acceptance of difference hmm. you know it just wouldn't yeah. wouldn't that be just a joy if the world came from that base absolutely and but also in terms of opening up to these conversations, it's about accepting one's own ignorance. Yes. You know, and because a lot of people are not willing to participate in the conversation because they are too scared of coming across as stupid. Mm. I mean, that is yeah. just a fact. I myself feel very like unfamiliar with a lot of the terms that we're using today and and a lot of, you know, I can understand sort of the broader topic and I can intellectualise it, but do the terms roll off my tongue? No, they don't. And so that's something that I guess I'm self-conscious of and really I shouldn't be because I know that I'm in a safe space, but imagine somebody who just really does not know where to begin. What do you say to somebody like that? Like what is your tolerance level, Sunny, around people who really are quite ignorant? I'm very patient with people who don't know because 
at the end of the day, them not knowing isn't a personal failing. Um, and it's actually quite interesting because I feel like uh, the way people frame intelligence or think about intelligence is another example of neuronormative expectations, that being smart is good. That's the right way to be. And it shows in how we look down upon stupidity. We view ignorance and not knowing as the worst thing to be, as a personal failing, as a moral failing. Yeah, because it's a huge vulnerability in our society. That we don't know things. Why are we expected to know everything? Well, how is he going to learn if you don't acknowledge that you don't know something? Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's where that embarrassment and that shame and vulnerability comes from with not knowing because we've associated with, with a failure, with negative Mm, it so much comes back to shame in so many yeah. of our conversations, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, just with people who don't know things, we have to approach them with like, you know, patience. We really do because like you said, how will we uh, know things unless we learn them and listen and have a conversation and teach and educate? Sunny, your incredibly open heart and tolerance of you know, the world that has been pretty cruel to you is very beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Don't you think, Mimi? No, like it really, yeah, it, it is because not everybody, as we know all too well, not everybody lands on their feet, so to speak, and, and not everybody goes and turns that pain into very deliberate, considered purpose. And that is what you have clearly done. And I wonder whether there was a conscious moment in that evolution of Sunny where you just realise, hang on, this is now my purpose so that nobody else has to go through what I have been through. I think, you know, that shift was when I was, I've had enough pain to last me a lifetime. Um, You know, I I think I just like hated myself and was miserable enough and in pain and lonely and tired for so long that I kind of didn't want to continue living that way, I guess. And having a purpose, it's almost selfish in a way. Um, And I don't think there's anything wrong with being selfish. Having a purpose makes me feel better. It makes me feel like, you know what, it was all worth it, which makes me feel better about my childhood. And, you know, it gives me a sense of hope and positivity and compassion. And and you know what, sometimes it's nice to be like, yes, I'm right. <laughs> the actual right. <laughs> I'll take what I can get, okay? (laughs) Oh, we love that you've used your story and that pain to be able to reach others and to give them the glimmer of hope that they need to be able to step through the door and, and make something of life like you have. We are a podcast called A to B and you have been extraordinary in sharing your A to B. But what is it, how would you describe what it is to be sunny? What is your be. What does it mean to be sunny? I guess unapologetic and single-minded and passionate and stubborn and relentless. That'll do. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> That's <laughs> I'm, I'm brilliant, sunny. About, you know, you know uh, 
being sunny is about being sunny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That works too. Yeah, Yeah. You are are sunny, but you don't need to be all the time. Thank you. It's just been a delight to learn from you. The book is called We're All Neurodiverse. It is brilliant. I think everybody should read this, should be taken into schools and workplaces. It's it's just so powerful and I learned a lot and I will be um, sharing it with a lot of people. So thank you, Sunny. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Sunny. Congratulations. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We love you joining us for our A to B chats. Yes, we do. Please see our show notes for our acknowledgement of country and all the people who help us put this podcast together, as well as interesting links to our guests' work and other references we've mentioned. We're Joe And Mimi from A to B. Rate, follow and get in touch on our website. And let us know whose A to B you'd like to find out about. We can't wait for you to hear our next conversation. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 